Good evening, everyone, and either welcome to your first evening of this year's summer school or welcome back to what might be your second or third. How we're nearly halfway through the week, I don't know. I don't know. As always, I'm welcoming you on behalf of the summer school panel. In numerical order of the second half of our telephone numbers, we are Kate Brady McKenna, Jane Blackall, Michael Allard, and Nicola Temple. You really are welcome here. You are welcome no matter what. Wherever you're joining us from, however you're feeling, however settled you are in the space where you are, you are welcome here. Your presence in our midst and on our screens is important to us all. These theme talks are a sacred offering from the speakers and they're offered as acts of worship as well as lectures. The overall theme of the week you probably know is right relationship, practicing love, peace and justice in everyday life. And each talk is around an hour, an hour or 15 minutes, which gives the speakers more scope to go deeply into their topics than they might normally have in an average sermon. I will be introducing tonight's speakers shortly, but first we do have our housekeeping notices. These do help to make our time together run smoothly. They help us create sacred space and they help us be in right relationship with one another. So if you've heard them before, it's good to hear them again. You will have noticed that you are muted and that the chat function is turned off. It is much easier for everyone without those distractions going on. So it's not accidental if you can't use them. If you do have questions that come up during the talks, please make a note of them. And if you still want to ask them after the talks are over, contact the speakers and ask if they're happy for you to do that. Remember what I said, though, that these talks are sacred offerings. Subtitles should be available to you. If you're on a, a laptop or a PC, you should be able to toggle them on and off down at the bottom down there. Try that while I'm just carrying on through the housekeeping notices rather than waiting until the talks start, because what the talks have to say is even more important than these notices. They are live and they are automatic, so sometimes they might not exactly pick up on what the speakers are saying. They may not say that horrifying thing that you think they've just said because the subtitle said so. If you do have any problems with them, let us know. An hour, an hour, 15 minutes is a long time for sitting still looking at a screen. It's not very good for our eyes. So you have our absolute blessing to turn your cameras off whenever you need to. And that includes keeping them off the whole time if that's what you'd prefer. If you get up for a stretch or anything else, which again, I advise when you need it, please do just turn your camera off. You'd be surprised how easy it is to forget. After the talk finishes, we'll have a five minute break for everyone to make ourselves comfortable. And then you're invited to gather again to join in smaller groups for some guided discussions on the talk. I know that some of you will need to leave to get on with things and other people don't like breakout groups. So you have our absolute blessing to leave at that point. Those groups won't be monitored and they won't be recorded, but we know that everyone will be respectful and compassionate in how they deal with each other. 
if you would like a pastoral discussion with a minister about something which arises in the talks, you are invited to contact Reverend Michael Alert or myself at any time between the session ending and 9.45 p.m. Our contact details went out with your invitation, and we will each be keeping an eye on our email boxes and our Facebook Messenger apps. So if you want to speak to us about something that's come up in the talks, please feel free to contact us in that time period. And so our theme speakers this evening are in alphabetical order of first names, Arik Nalecki and Laura Dobson. Oh, Arik's waving there. Laura grew up in a Warwickshire farming family and now lives in Greater Manchester with her husband and their dog. She's been a Unitarian since 2013, qualified as a minister in 2021, and serves the congregations at Chalton and Macclesfield. Laura is passionate about embodied spirituality, enjoys daily walks around the Goit Valley with her border collie, loves to sing loudly, and sporadically practices kundalini and yin yoga. Arek is a ministry student with the Unitarian College and the Luther King Centre for Theology and Ministry in Manchester. He admires people who are able to sit still and upright through times of prayer, as he doesn't understand how that is even possible. Being a serial fidgeter himself, he embraces the idea of embodied spirituality, engaging the body, movement and senses in spiritual practice. He's recently qualified as a fitness instructor and teaches regular classes in gyms in the Leeds area. He recognises that movement and sensory experiences are his spiritual practice. And so now I invite you to take a couple of breaths to settle yourself into a spirit of sacred receptiveness and community. And I'm going to pass you over to Arik and Laura. Kate said that I'm, I'm a serial fidgeter. I just can't help myself. I just need to badge straight in and go for it. But it was good just to catch a breath with Sarah Thompson and her song entitled Breath. So this time, once again, welcome from us to the third of our summer school talks continuing on the theme of right relationships. And today you will have the absolute pleasure to spend the evening with my co-host, Laura Dobson, and also a questionable pleasure of having me. Now, to those of you who don't know me, my name is Arek, just like Kate said, and I'm a Unitarian student minister going into my final year of training now. So that's me. But anyway, I think that Jane must have been quite desperate to find speakers this year to have asked me. But here we are. It is what it is. So now we all have to deal with the consequences. Um, because I'm not sure how this is going to go. For that reason mostly for that reason, but also because our topic is deeply spiritual about right relationship with our embodied selves, I propose that we start by a simple centering, grounding ourselves. And here's what I propose to do. Firstly, let us pay attention to other people that we can see on our screens, at least those, those of us who have our cameras on. And let's 
greet each other gently with a smile, acknowledge each other's presence, you know, just so we know, or maybe wave to one another, just so we know that we're here, truly here, joining together in a brief moment of prayer, meditation, or reflection. Call it whatever you want to call it. No, actually, stop. Not yet. <laughs> Not yet. I'm sorry to have interrupted um, your prayerful moment so abruptly before it even started, but I have a good reason for it. And you will get a little meditative treat at the end just to compensate you. And my apologies for playing this dirty trick on you right now, but I wanted you to look at one another because I hope that you've noticed how many of you, the moment I have asked you to join me in a time of prayer or meditation or contemplation, you've all made those little adjustments on your screen. You adjusted the, your seating position the moment I invited you to the time of spiritual engagement. And as a worship leader, for me, it's always so fun to watch, especially at any in-person worship gathering. The moment you say it, people make those small adjustments. Now, did you adjust your own body too? Sat more comfortably? Or perhaps adopted your own version of a prayerful pose? Why? I didn't say a word about adjusting how we are, and yet most of us did it. An instinct or a learned behavior? A conscious choice or a subconscious habit? <laughs> I love observing how we've pavloved ourselves into making those adjusting motions the moment a variation on the phrase, let us pray, gets thrown around. Now, either way, as I leave you with the question of why I adjusted myself, I want to ask you once again to return to your breath. Now, this time, I promise there will be no unceremonial interruptions. <laughs> you can trust me this time. Simply breathe with me. Breathe with me, the breath of life. Inhale, inspire, inspiration, ruach, pneuma, spiritus, the Holy Spirit, the many names for breath. Breathe with me. Know that with, with each breath we take, we take in the molecules of air that were breathed by every person that ever lived. So breathe with me and breathe the breath of Jesus, of Moses, of Muhammad, of Buddha, Breathe with me and know that we are all interdependent. That the spirit of life flows through us all. Breathe 
with me. As we come together to do the holy work of interconnection and relationship so that our work here may be blessed. And now, I will light the chalice flame here behind me. Now, for me, for me, it will be only the simple act. For me, it will be silent. It will be action, movement of my body, movement of my hand, motion, energy, light and heat. Laura, Laura will share the spoken words with you. We light this chalice, symbol of our Unitarian faith in the divine spark within us all. May the deeds we do with our hands and the words we speak with our lips and the thoughts we think with our minds and the things we feel in our hearts be at all times worthy of that divine spark within us. Amen. Now, today, we will look at what embodied spirituality means. What it means to have the right relationship with our flesh and how to translate it to the right relationship with our communities and with all the existence. I do wonder if our denomination occasionally downplays the fact that we are bodies in the way we approach spirituality. Not always, of course, but by and large, our spiritual engagement is mostly intellectual. I mean, we love talking, don't we? <laughs> we love words, we love writing and intellect, and that's all good. We like mindfulness, and I'm using this term here very loosely, as in having our mind full to the brim. But um, Alan Watts, um, one of the 20th century philosophers, said that a person who thinks all the time has nothing to think about except thoughts. So they lose touch with reality and live in a world of illusions. By thoughts, I mean specifically chattering the skull, perpetual and compulsive repetition of words, of reckoning and calculating. So, how about bodyfulness as opposed to mindfulness? And by the way, every time um, I, I type the word bodyfulness, my computer insists on auto-correcting it to joyfulness, and I just love it so much. We need to show you this, because uh, otherwise you wouldn't believe me. <laughs> oh, joyfulness. There is a phrase that gets thrown around um, quite often actually, you know, in the pop spirituality. And that is that we are not human beings with spiritual experiences, we are spiritual beings with human experiences. And you know what? I dislike this phrase so much because it negates, in my opinion, the incarnational aspects of our being. It downplays 
how incredibly important it is that we have bodies. Well, exactly. Have bodies? We tend to think that we have a body rather than we are a body. Elizabeth Moltmann Wendell, who was a feminist theologian, wrote that this having a body is our predominant experience. We have body for working, for running, for caring, for loving, for eating, dancing, doing all those things that we love to do and all those things that we have to do. And our experience is that the body functions. It does what we want it to do until it doesn't. And then we become insecure. We lose the rhythm and framework of our everyday life. And it often takes such crisis for us to have another experience, namely that we are bodies. That this is not just a thing attached to me below my head, that this is me. The church, generally speaking, pretty much since it began, distrusted the body. A false dichotomy was developed, and it was partially rooted in a certain interpretation of the scripture. There are two different words for body in the New Testament Greek. There's sarx and the soma. Soma being used as body in a greater sense, the body of church, the body of Christ, and sarx meant flesh. So this is, for example, where we get words like sarcophagus, sarcophagus, literally flesh eater. Sarx. Sarx was seen as impure, to be repressed, just a bag of meat, bones, and all sorts of disgusting bodily fluids inside, and even more disgusting meats. An instrument potentially very dangerous, sinful. And you probably won't be surprised um, that in such theology, with such dichotomy, a man was often perceived as representing the head, the intellect, the spiritual dimension. And a woman, well, the female body, was often precisely this, a body, which needs to be under control, kept in check. Now, there were, of course, throughout the church history, people challenging such artificial division, and many of them were women. So, I want to stay quiet for now and pass the talking stick to one of those women, to Laura, who will tell us about some influential women of faith, as well as her own experience of being a body. Hello everyone, my name's Laura and I'm 49 years old, which means that I am perimenopausal. So I want to start by sharing some of my experience in adapting and reframing my spiritual practice over the last few months as I navigate the changes in my body brought about by the perimenopause. As you can see, there are lots and lots and lots of symptoms but it took me quite a long time to recognise what was happening to me. 
menopause isn't something we discuss in polite society. And as such, it was something of a mystery to me until I enlisted the help of the good old internet and eventually my doctor. The fact that it was a mystery to me is part of what seems to be a modern Western societal aversion to acknowledging aging and the workings of our bodies, particularly women's bodies. But as Eric said, we are our bodies. Our bodies carry our ancestral identities and our personal stories. Unless we are skilled in astral projection, all of our earthly experiences happen in and through our bodies. And I've always been keen on spiritual practices that are grounded in physicality. As part of our ministry training, students are encouraged to explore what spiritual practices we find nourishing and to develop a regular practice routine. So I developed a morning practice, which usually included a body prayer, a short yoga routine, some singing or chanting, and maybe some freeform dancing if I was feeling particularly energetic that day. These are all practices that help to ground me in my body and set me up for the day. But as my symptoms increased, I noticed myself developing a strong resistance to my morning spiritual practice. I'm not going to bore you with the whole raft of perimenopausal symptoms, but suffice to say that they include brain fog, increased anxiety, persistent fatigue and intermittent joint pain, which are all things that can make me feel dislocated from my body. And on reflection, I felt that part of my resistance to my spiritual practice routines was a reluctance to attend to what was happening in my body, to be with the discomfort and the sometimes pain that I found there. I wasn't really sure what to do about this. I'd never been very good at sitting still. And I knew that spiritual practices that didn't involve movement wouldn't really work for me. But most mornings I was finding it hard to motivate myself to move very much. So I realized that I needed to reframe my spiritual practice and to adapt it for this phase of my life. And engaging with the work of three inspirational women and one inspirational man has helped me to do that. The first inspirational woman is Hildegard von Bingen. And this is a statue of her in her, the garden of her abbey in Ibingen. She lived from 1089 to 1098 sorry to 1179 in the Rhine Valley in Germany and she was a Benedictine abbess and a polymath. She composed what may be the first opera ever written and about 75 liturgical songs. She wrote nine books covering theology, holistic medicine, cosmology, ethics, scriptural commentaries and the biographies of saints. She completed several preaching tours and wrote more than 300 letters to leading political and religious figures in which he often called out hypocrisy and corruption. Her work was neglected by the church for centuries and it's only recently re-emerged. The first book of her writings which was translated into English, which is called Meditations with Hildegard by Gabrielle Uline, was published in 1983 and she was made Doctor of the Church by Pope Benedict in 2012. She was a, she's one of only four women to hold that title. These are a couple of her of illustrations that were probably painted by her nuns and not by Hildegard herself, but they are her visions of creation. And as you can see, they are all about symmetry and balance and they illustrate her holistic worldview. 
There are two concepts that I've found throughout Hildegard's work that I find helpful in considering well-being. In Latin, these are viriditas and discretio. Viriditas can be roughly translated as greening power. Hildegard used it to refer to the life force, vigour or vitality of both plants and people. She used it to refer to what we now understand as photosynthesis, the power of plants to harness the energy of the sun, and also to human sexual desire. Please do forgive the heteronormative expression in the following quote. She was in the context of the 11th century. She wrote, the human body is green. Green is the blood. A man awakens through the green power of sexuality. Viriditas flourishes in the beauty of a woman. In terms of well-being, Viriditas can be thought of as what allows us to flourish and to thrive. Discretio is sometimes translated as moderation, but it has a greater depth of meaning. It also means discretion, discrimination, discernment, difference and distinction. When we put these two concepts together in the context of right relationship, we can use discernment as a guiding principle in relation to our life force. Hildegard's view of life included the belief that God created balance in the body and order in the cosmos. Discretio is the practice of living that balance or order in the union of human and divine, finding the harmony of body, mind and soul. It involves paying attention to our inner compass, to the promptings of our bodies and to our deep selves, to find the right measure in all things. And we can use discretio to find the right measure for ourselves in all aspects of life, the balance between work and leisure, between activity and rest, between sleep and wakefulness, we can use discretio to work through such questions as what does a balanced diet look like for us? How do we find the right measure for ourselves in our consumption of media? How do we live with awareness of our natural environment and the seasonal changes? Are our relationships reciprocal? Is there a balance between the care we give out and the care we receive? Discretio involves taking responsibility for our actions and choices. We can use it to examine our habits, our social conditioning and our unconscious thought patterns to make the changes we need to flourish and thrive. Balance involves an ongoing process of interconnection. The physical, emotional, intellectual and spiritual dimensions of our lives are interwoven. When balance is disturbed, we experience disease or dis-ease. Even a minor illness such as the common cold affects all these dimensions. We may think of it as a merely physical illness, but as well as feeling physically ill, it affects our emotional mood, how well we function intellectually, and our sense of interconnection and wholeness. The psychological and physical symptoms of menopause are similarly interwoven. Anxiety, brain fog and mood swings exacerbate palpitations, tingling skin, and headaches and vice versa. It can feel a bit like being trapped in a vicious circle. And so I began to ask myself what Hildegard might teach me about my experience. What are the lessons of Riditas and Discretio? What is getting in the way of me flourishing? How can I discern the truth of the matter? 
how can I be more at ease with myself and my situation? How can I find the right measure for myself? And these are, of course, ongoing questions that I keep coming back to again and again. Perimenopause isn't an entirely linear journey, just like life itself. The right measure might be different for me on different days. Some days I just need lots of rest to replenish my viriditas. Some days I can replenish it with gentle exercise, such as a leisurely walk in the woods, or just 15 minutes of yin yoga. Some days it might be some chanting and some breath work that helps me feel in tune with the flow of life. But before I hand back to Eric, here's what Hildegard says about discretio. Discretio is the mother of all virtues, for everything heavenly and earthly, always looking for the justice of God in all things. God gives us the virtues as tools to accomplish his work. Live by the golden mean. Don't build a ruin through exaggeration or ruin yourself with excessive desire. We shall sigh and pray, fulfilling good deeds at an appropriate time and caring for our daily needs at another. Try hard and exercise daily, regardless of what charismatic gifts you have. Through discretio, the body is nourished with the proper discipline. Mm. That's true. Thank you, Laura. And Laura, you've already mentioned that we, as ministry students, going or starting our training, we were told right from the start to find a spiritual practice that works for us. Now, another thing that I've been told um, as part of my theology degree in Manchester um, was to develop my own rule of life. Now, for those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, the rule of life was a set of 73 rules that St. Benedict of Nursia, here on this little picture, living in the 5th and 6th century, developed for the monks in his monasteries. Now, it is not an exaggeration to say that I was absolutely terrified when I was told that I have to write some sort of Benedictine rule of life for myself. I thought, I can't remember signing up to be a monk. <laughs> And I felt this way because the word rule can be off-putting. It sounds so impersonal and authoritarian, doesn't it? Human and spiritual progress is surely not for measuring against the precise straight edge of a ruler. That's what David Runcorn wrote in his spirituality workbook, which I, by the way, recommend. And this is especially true for me as a Unitarian. After all, I do not call myself a free thinker and non-conformist for nothing. <laughs> but those of you who know me also know that I am a little bit of a language geek, and I often trace the etymology of different words. The Latin word for rule is regula, which suggests um, a, signpost, a signpost or a handrail and I think that this is a gentler and more nurturing picture of a rule. It is something that offers support and gives direction in my journey of life and faith. It's simply something to lean on. So as suspicious as I was about formulating any rules, at that time I had to realize that my life had become chaotic. 
Suddenly, many of the unwritten rules governing my days, which I detested so much, had vanished. Poof, just like that. Firstly, there were the COVID restrictions. And secondly, after 10 years of climbing the corporate ladder, I resigned from full-time employment in order to train for church ministry. My so far structured life was taken over by disorder. I was not able to distinguish my rest times from my work or study times, time for household chores blurred with time for entertainment. Everything merged into one and appeared formless. I began to wonder that perhaps I do actually need some of those previously despised patterns in order to function. I discovered that this total lack of structure and composure to my days was a curse. But as someone who suffocates in the world of regulations and generally dislikes rigid structures, rarely plans and allows life to simply carry him where it will, I knew that I had to keep my rule rather vague too. If my rule of life was too detailed, I would fail the moment I started. I knew that trying to come up with 73 chapters, um, as Benedict did, to my own rule of life would defeat the object, as Benedictine emphasis on stability is not some piece of abstract idealism. It is typically realistic. Words like stability and balance get repeated in all literature that deals with the Benedictine rule. I wondered, however, whether this stability should be the end in itself or simply a tool to reach a different goal. I am suspicious of approaching life as a whole with a certain end in mind, be it a vision of career, big life achievement, or even heaven or nirvana after we die. I concluded that instead of beginning with an end in mind, which suggests that I may eventually arrive at my destination, I thought that I perhaps ought to begin with a point in mind. It struck me that the St. Benedict's monks, um, the, the days, were built on the rhythmic succession of three elements, prayer, study, and work. Four hours each day were devoted to liturgical prayer, four to spiritual reading, and six hours to manual work. And although chapter 48 of the rules states that idleness is the enemy of the soul, the structure of the monk's days was not conditioned by the productivity. Rather, it was about time spent on each task. This was a significant discovery for me. I needed to unlearn the frankly capitalist idea that I must measure my worth against my productivity. St. Benedict did not say how many acres of land his monks were supposed to plow or how many chapters of the Bible they were to read before they were allowed to move on to the next part of the day. Instead, the days were divided into segments of time. And this was like a light bulb moment for me. 
It's a person who self-diagnoses himself with a severe time blindness. I struggle regulating the time I spend on individual tasks. As soon as something catches my interest, boom, I go into the hyper-focus and I become completely devoured by it. Having said that, as I started to work on my personal rule of life, I needed to consider what is the point, not the end goal, of life for me. Now, this highly existential question cannot be possibly explored here, and many books have been written about it, many great minds wrestled with the topic. However, since many people suggest that the rule of life is simply a tool to become more human, then the life that it is seeking to govern must also be a life that is unapologetically human. A life that takes the incarnational aspect of our being seriously. I started to wonder, what things make me feel alive in the moment, connected to the divine, to the universe? Stability, balance, as the rule describes it, is fundamental. It is something much more profound than not running away from oneself. It means acceptance of the totality of each human as a whole person, involving mind, spirit, and, you've guessed it, body. By my own admission, I am scatterbrained. And for a long time, I found it difficult to identify something in which I could comfortably anchor my spiritual practice and not get easily bored of it. For months, if not years, I have been trying to practice stillness, meditation on words, spiritual reading of scripture or poetry, and those eh, kind of worked for me to some extent, but often left me frustrated when the words fell flat. When I was in a group, I often looked around other people you know, everybody sitting upright through times of prayer or meditation, being clearly deeply in it. I was good at faking it. I felt nothing. I just wanted to move. I wanted to scream. At moments like that, I felt like a fraud. But then I concluded, perhaps this is linked to the way my brain works. I cannot sit still. I fidget. My brain needs constant simulation and chases after physical sensations. Occupying this body of mine for 33 years, I still learn how it functions. I have never said it publicly before. This is the first time I'm saying it out loud, so please be gentle with me. But it has been suggested to me by my GP and by some other people, including people from my university, that I may actually fall under the neurodivergent umbrella. Although I am still waiting for a specialist to confirm it. So far, I've been waiting a year and a half, but that's another story. But this suggestion alone was the turning point in the way I think of my own spiritual practice. 
I needed to recognize that engaging my physical senses helps me harness my attention. One way of putting it, I suppose, would be to say that I need bells and smells to some extent. For example, I have discovered that brewing strong, fragrant cup of tea, which I can hold, smell, taste as I meditate, helps. Walking the labyrinth is great. Anyone here um, into walking labyrinths? Yeah. Or so does sleeping mala beads, which I always have with me, through my fingers, or even rosary, um, as I pray, or count breaths. Thinking about it, um, the kneading club at the GA meetings, at the back row, or sometimes front row, comes to mind. I decided to fully embrace this part of me and experiment with engaging my physicality as my spiritual practice. In our tradition, there is emphasis on rational mind, on thinking and on words. After all, our denomination gained its prominence during the Enlightenment, the period of time in the human history when the reason was seen to be at the pinnacle of what it means to be human. Cogito ergo sum. I think, therefore I am. This primacy of logic and reason was so prominent that it is even self-evident in the architecture of so many of our chapels where the pulpit often is the place for the spoken word, occupies the central spot. Theologically, this approach can be described as cataphatic. God is so great that we must keep on talking and thinking about him, her, God. I began to wonder that since stillness and spoken words genuinely tire me, Perhaps I should try to embrace the opposites, movements and feelings. I realized that walks in nature have always been spiritually nourishing for me. So I decided to approach movement more seriously and take the, the apophatic way. Starved of words, nothing that we can say or write can possibly cut it. Words and thoughts are so limited. The apophatic method, starved of words, but rooted in physical movement, became my spiritual practice, my way of recharging and sustaining myself so that I could then come back to people, to the world of words, thoughts, and concepts. What I do vary from day to day. It could be anything from unceremonial and very profane on the surface cardio or weight workouts through swimming, walks in nature, to yoga and tai chi. I engage in some form of meditation through movement at least once a day. Some days I do it alone, other times with people. But I set the intention of simply feeling fully alive, being truly present in my body, in that, move, in that moment. In the words of American Unitarian Universalist minister Gretchen Haley, I give up the fight for some other moment, some other life than here and now. 
I gave up the longing for some other world, wishing for other choices to make. I surrender only to this life, this day, this hour. I focus on the rhythms of my breath and my heart beating in unison with my chosen music, which is often there. I pay attention to my chest rising as it expands, filled with oxygen. I aim to begin the song exactly where I am. Remain within the world of which I am made. Start with the very breath I breathe in now, this moment's pulse, this rhythm in my blood. I completely give in to all these physical sensations with feelings of gratitude to every bit of my heart, every bit of the music hitting my eardrums, every movement of my chest, every muscle shaking, every drop of sweat running down my skin. I feel that through movement, I can experience the divine reality in a way that is not accessible to me through language or cold rational thinking. Embracing physicality, this gift we have been given, these body clothes, enables me to feel at one not only with myself, but also with the whole universe. Admittedly, I have had several experiences that I guess one may call mystical. And it may sound weird for the skeptics among you. But every time it happened, it happened when my mind was at rest and my body was engaged. Now, I am utterly unable to describe the divine without turning to those negative description of this ultimate reality. I do not know who or what God is, but I am convinced that I cannot know God. I can only feel God. I do not know where God resides, but I doubt that it is in the lines of ink on the paper in human ideas, concepts, or constructs. Any attempts to find God through intellectual wrestling, arguments, or persuasions are, in my view, also futile. My instinct is to give up on trying to know or discern God through logic and reckoning, and that we, all of us, already have the ability to tap through our emotions and feelings into that great mystery which cannot be known. We only need to listen to it, ringing soft and low. Stay with the music. Words may come in time. Become an open singing bowl whose chime is richness rising out of emptiness and timelessness resounding into time. In other words, for me, God starts where language begins to fail. Through physical movement, I allow myself to simply exist in the very moment. 
This enables me not only to feel grounded, but also fills me with enthusiasm for life. And by enthusiasm, I mean the state of bliss and tranquility that emerges from recognition of having our being in God's essence. Again, etymology from the Greek word enthusiasmos, literally meaning in God's essence, entheousia, enthusiasmos. To quote Julian of Norwich, my understanding took that our substance is in God. This in turn enables me to abandon the chase for some other life, some other goal, and to relinquish aspirations to be anything other than who I am. I no longer see my life through the metaphor of a journey, which aim is to arrive at a certain destination. I see it as a dance, movement through time and space, which is to be savored. Case already mentioned right at the start that I qualified as a group exercise instructor and I teach regular classes in gyms. I teach a program called Body Attack, <laughs> which is a high intensity cardio class with banging music, super loud party with aerobics, plyometrics, sports agility, athletic strength, and it leaves participants and myself absolutely buzzing and on high. And I also teach the opposite of it body balance body flow which is a new generation practice it's a, a fusion of yoga tai chi and pilates which apart from being a, a fantastic full body exercise it also teaches people how to tap uh, to the breath it challenges balance alignment flexibility strength it creates a sense of calmness and both of those programs are carefully choreographed to music now, of course, none of them are explicitly spiritual, and yet they are my spiritual practice. And since some of the attendees that come to my gym classes know that I train for ministry, I have had some of the most fascinating spiritual conversations at gyms, after classes, sometimes deeper than in church buildings. I keep reminding people attending my classes that if they have a destination, a goal in mind, i.e., I don't know, losing weight, becoming fitter or whatever, that's all good. But the point is to enjoy the moment. The point of the class is the class. Just like in the rule of St. Benedict, it is about the time spent on an activity rather than some achievement per se. It is the dance of the moment that matters no special destination to arrive at. And most importantly, we do it, we exercise, not because we hate our bodies, but because we love them. Engaging with movement and physicality on a deeper level, much to my surprise, turned out to be an incredibly rich spiritual resource, a font of wisdom, peace and tranquility, helping me in turn to minister to others. Admittedly, most of my ideas for Sunday services came to me while exercising, being in movement. And since the classes I teach are done to music, we all have no choice but to get out of our heads, trust in our bodies, and feel how incredible they are, synchronize our movements as a group, and breathing patterns, 
and the sense of oneness is profound, created in an unlikely place, a gym. <laughs> this is my bodyfulness, joyfulness. So now over to Laura to talk a little bit more about the actual idea of bodyfulness. There are two contemporary women writers who introduced me to the concept of bodyfulness. And this has revolutionized how I approach my embodied spiritual practice. In her book, Bodyfulness, Christine Coldwell writes, the body isn't a thing we have, but an experience we are. Bodyfulness begins when the embodied self is held in a conscious, contemplative environment. It's then coupled with non-judgmental engagement with body bodily processes, an acceptance and appreciation of one's bodily nature, and an ethical and aesthetic orientation toward taking right actions physically, so that a lessening of suffering and an increase in human and non-human potential may emerge. In her book, Coldwell explores what she terms the four pillars of bodyfulness practice, breathing, sensing, moving and relating, as well as exploring issues of body identity, body authority and body stories. She suggests various particular exercises to try, but also emphasises that bodyfulness is embedded in our everyday experience. She concludes, embedded practice may be another good synonym for bodyfulness, how we reach out and pick up our child, how we wait before eating to check to see if we are really hungry, how we gaze at a troubled stranger, how we notice a gut feeling, and how we breathe into a happy moment. All these experiences can be bodyful. We access this bodyful state by practicing right now during this breath, feeling this sensation, noticing this small motion right here right now. The other Christine, Christine Volkter's painter, in her book, The Wisdom of the Body, takes the reader on a contemplative journey of the body, exploring viriditas, breath, senses, emotions, thoughts, vulnerability, incarnation, joy, earthliness, and coming home. She writes, for me, Bodyfulness would mean a willing descent into the wilderness of my body, to stay and listen and explore, and to delight and dream in that dark space of unknowing where things don't move in straight lines according to plan. It would mean that each morning I would awaken and listen for how my body wanted to be nourished that day through food, movement, and the pleasure of touch. Bodyfulness would mean that I inhaled deeply and allowed my breath to find all the places within that need softening. I would lavish my senses with delights, knowing that they were a portal to the divine presence. I would allow the waves of my emotions to travel through me, knowing that they had holy purpose as well. I would dance each day as often as possible and rest deeply, knowing that I was offering myself healing balm. Bodyfulness has inspired me to consider that my spiritual practice needn't just be a set of exercises I do in the morning, 
but could be paying attention to and reflecting on how I am in myself and in my relationships with others. Paying attention to and reflecting upon my everyday embodied experience. How I feel when I laugh with a friend or play with my dog. How my shoulders drop and my breathing slows when I enter the woods. How I discern with my gut whether to say yes or no. How I listen to the signals from my body that tell me when I need to rest. How I hold eye contact when I speak words of encouragement or nod in acknowledgement of someone else's pain. How I felt myself smiling and my heart expanding with joy when I saw a young girl cartwheeling along the platform as I got off the tram yesterday. All these things I can now frame as spiritual practice. They contribute to my wholeness and well-being and the wholeness and well-being of others with whom I come into contact. I'm learning to become ever more fully present in my embodied experience, even when that experience is uncomfortable and painful, even on the days when I feel grief deep in my bones. I'm gaining a deeper appreciation of my body as the ground of my being. As the psalmist says, I praise you. For I am awesomely, wondrously made. I'm gaining a deeper understanding of my faith that the universe is the body of God and that we are all members of that body, as St. Paul says, who care for each other as members of one body, suffering with and rejoicing with one another. Rabbi Rachel Baron Blatt, in her blog, The Velveteen Rabbi, which may just be the best blog title ever, writes about the story from the book of Exodus of the Israelites escaping from slavery in Egypt by crossing the Sea of Reeds, which by the way was mistranslated as the Red Sea in the King James Version. And a commentary on the passage by Rabbi Shalom Noak Bozovsky, who teaches that there are three kinds of amuna or elemental trust. Trusting mind, trusting heart and trusting body. And the highest of these is Emunat Har Everim, trusting with one's limbs, where deep trust penetrates every fibre of one's being. In that moment of leaping into the sea of reeds, the children of Israel fully trusted in the one, and therefore the Holy Spirit rested upon them and sang in them and song burst not only from their lips, but from their very limbs. Baron Black comments, trusting with one's body, what a radical notion. Not just trusting one's body, which is challenging enough sometimes, but trusting with the body, taking that plunge and being transformed by it. May we open ourselves to the transformative possibilities of walking through the world with eyes made for wonder. Paul Simon sang, these are the days of miracle and wonder. I give thanks for the miracle and wonder of the matter that makes up my body, your body, the body of the earth. Trusting life, trusting with the body, trusting that a leap of faith will lead to liberation, feeling the invitation and the response in my body. That's what bodyfulness means for me. One of the most accessible ways we can ground ourselves in the present moment and in our bodies is through our breath. 
and in a few minutes I'll invite you to join me in a short practice of breath work. But first I want to explore briefly the sacred nature of breath. The Lord God formed man from the dust of the earth. He blew into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. Genesis 2 verse 7. The Jewish study Bible commentary on this verse reads, Here man has a lowlier origin than in the parallel in the first chapter. He is created not in the image of God, but from the dust of the earth. But he also has a closer and more intimate relationship with his creator, who blows the breath of life into him, transforming that lowly earthbound creature into a living being. In this understanding, the human being is not an amalgam of perishable body and immortal soul, but a psycho-physical unity who depends on God for life itself. Hildegard's version of this text from her own vision of creation is even more earthy. She writes, with my mouth, I kiss my chosen creation. I uniquely, lovingly, Embrace every image I have made out of the earth's clay. With a fiery spirit, I transform it into a body to serve all the world. Hildegard had a very strong sense that a human being is a psycho-physical unity who depends on God for life itself. She had a very strong sense of the sacredness of the body and of the earth and of the whole of life being held in divine love. In the West, we are used to thinking in a dualistic manner, body and soul, mind and matter. But in Hebrew, the word ruach in he means breath, wind and spirit. It refers to things both physical and more than physical, the tangible and the intangible, which are all part of the same reality. The breath, which is in a very physical sense, our life force, is both tangible and intangible. We can feel it, but we cannot see it unless it's a very cold day. Most of the time we are unaware of our own breathing because it's something we do automatically. And over the last two and a half years, the airborne transmission of coronavirus has made us all painfully aware of the negative consequences of the fact that we are all breathing the same air. But it is also a sacred sign of our interconnectedness. And I want to invite us into a conscious, sacred relationship with the breath in our own bodies as the life force, our connection to the one source of life we all share. The herbalist and poet Bridget Anna McNeil writes, Reciprocity is in each moment, invisible threads of connection that support and nurture. Take the simple act of breathing, we breathe out carbon dioxide, which the trees, plants and seaweeds love and need. They breathe us in, the very essence that moved through us, holding stories of blood, grief, joy and bone, now moves through them. Turning our breath into oxygen, they transform what we let go of into the support we need to survive and thrive. As we breathe in, the very essence that moved in tree, plant and ocean, holding stories of wildness, salt, earth, roots, 
tides and growth, now moves in us. Each breath full of the strength of oak, the tenacity of weed, the magic of foxglove, the depths of sea and the alchemy of earth. Hildegard referred to herself as a feather on the breath of God. To feel that I am a feather on the breath of God, that I am supported and directed by the source of life, I need to give myself space to tune into it. One of the best ways I've found to do that is to arrest my awareness in my heart space and to feel the calming rhythm of the resting breath as the life force moving through my body and through the world. The Sufi scholar Neil Douglas Klotz, in his wonderful book, Prayers of the Cosmos, writes about the many layers of meaning in the Aramaic Lord's Prayer. For each line of the prayer, he suggests some accompanying body prayer practices. I opened the book at random the other day and read, while lying or sitting, return to the peaceful place inside, created by feeling your heartbeat and breathing. As the medieval mystic Hildegard of Bingen said, everything may be felt a feather on the breath of God. A lovely moment of synchronicity. Of course, it is not just in the Judeo-Christian tradition that breath is considered sacred and synonymous with the life force or spirit. Around 3000 years ago, Indian sacred texts also talk of prana or life force or vital energy from which we get pranayama or controlled breathing, an integral part of ancient yoga techniques, which are still practiced today in both Eastern and Western yoga traditions. In China, the life force was known as qi, most often translated as energy. The Chinese system of conscious breathing is known as qigong or breath work. Managing the flow of prana or qi in the body became the basis of ancient Indian and Chinese medicine. And this brings me to the fourth inspirational person I want to mention today, James Nestor and his recent book, Breath, in which he goes into great detail about various research on breathing from ancient sacred texts to scientific studies of the 21st century. And he also explores a variety of controlled breathing techniques. He concludes that the perfect breath is through the nose, inhaling and exhaling for between 5.5 and 6 seconds each way. And this just happens to be the same rhythm as many mantras. For example, Om Mani Padme Hum in the Buddhist tradition or Sa Ta Na Ma in the Kundalini Yoga tradition take around 6 seconds to chant. It's also the same pattern as the Latin version of the Ave Maria prayer of the Rosary. These ancient prayers are designed to be chanted at the optimum number of breaths per minute to promote feelings of calmness and well-being. Hildegard says that prayer is breathing in and breathing out the one breath of the universe. What does it feel like in our bodies when we breathe as a sacred act? when the breath itself becomes our prayer, breathing in and breathing out the one breath of the universe. And my most profound experience of using breath as spiritual practice took place here, in this space at Mill Hill Chapel in Leeds. 
before lockdown, <clears throat> we had a group of six working in the city centre who used this space, precisely this part of the chapel, for the midweek um, lunchtime Simran meditation. And everyone was invited to join, so I did, on several occasions. And Simran meditation is meditation on the breath, the life force, where you chant the name of God in Sikhism, Wahe Guru. Guru, someone who leads you from the dark to light, and Wahe, meaning wondrous, or literally, wow. The wow guru, God. And as we meditated here, uh, sitting on the floor, I'll just turn the screen slightly down here on this space, sitting on the cushions. As we meditated, we inhaled on Wahe and exhaled on Guru. And we were doing it for about 25, 30 minutes, and there was no leader amongst us. And yet, collectively, as a group, as we chanted Wahe Guru in unison, we were speeding up and slowing down, getting louder and quieter, going with the flow, tapping into the instincts and feelings in the most wonderful way, tapping, tapping into one another and connecting with one another and with the universe in one breath, one chant, one resounding sound, one heartbeat. Those were very profound experiences for me. To finish our talk this evening, I want to invite you, if you would like to, to join me in a couple of short breathing exercises. The first is a cycle practiced in many yoga traditions, which involves inhaling through the nose, if you can, for a count of four, holding the breath at the top of the inhale for a count of four, exhaling through the nose again for a count of four, and holding the breath after the end of the exhale for a count of four. If you're going to join in, please look after your body and adjust your counting to whatever feels comfortable for you. Please don't force anything. We're going to practice this breath cycle for two minutes now, breathing in through the nose for a count of four, holding the breath for a count of four, exhaling for a count of four, and holding after the exhale for a count of four.
Now, second practice is the mantra Sa-ta-na-ma. In English, the words mean something like Sa is infinity or the totality of the cosmos. Ta is life or birth of form from the infinity. Na is death or transformation and Ma is rebirth. Sing along to the chant if you like or just listen and breathe in silence if you prefer and if you want to do movements with it as well there are some uh, mudras that go with this. So Sa, you put your thumb and forefinger together on Ta, your thumb and middle finger, on Na, your thumb and ring finger and on Ma, your thumb and little finger. Sa, Ta, Na, Ma. Again, this chant is a, just over two minutes long. A Blessing by Hildegard von Bingen. Good people, most royal greening verdancy, rooted in the sun, you shine with radiant light. In this circle of earthly existence, you shine so finely, it surpasses understanding. 
God hugs you. You are encircled by the arms of the mystery of God. Amen. I reckon, Laura, thank you for another evening where I got what I needed and I, I feel looking at people's faces, but so did other people who were here. Well, Laura and Eric have given us a lot to think about, a lot to ponder on, a lot of nourishment. So as we've been doing each evening, I invite you just to pop off for five minutes to put the kettle on, take care of what you need to do. And then I invite you to come back here so that we can put you into randomly assigned smaller groups for a 20-minute guided chat about the nourishment that Arik and Laura have given to us. You will be given prompt questions for these chats to make it a little easier. Just to remind you, they won't be recorded, won't be monitored, uh, although panel members may possibly bob in just to see how you're getting on. And after those 20 minute chats, we'll bring you back in here just to say goodnight. I know that some of you need or choose to leave us at this point, And please know that you do go with our blessing. I hope that you have a lovely evening and we look forward to seeing you for either or both of the rest of the talks. Tomorrow, we're welcoming Alex Bryanson and Tori Glimwell. So if you're leaving us now, you go with my blessing, with our blessings, and I bid you a good night. If you're staying with us, I'll see you back here in five minutes.